Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Okay, the Scottish play, Act 3, Scene 4. Let's pick it up where we left off. Oh, proper stuff. This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you to Duncan. LOL, these flaws and starts, imposters to true fear, would well become a woman's story at a winter's fire, authorized by her... Excuse me, stop. What is it? Did you say LOL? I did. It's not in the script. Well, it's implied in the script. Uh, How is it implied? You know, LOL, these flaws and starts, imposters to true fear, would well become a woman's story at a winter's fire. It's like, LOL. What does that even mean? That this is totes ridic. So she's not serious? She's serious that he can't be serious, but she's also saying it's not that serious what I'm being serious about. You can't say it. Seriously, dude? Shakespeare would not have said LOL. If he were alive today, he would. Romeo would have told Juliet that she was totes adorbs. That is S-S-I-N-F. What does that mean again? So stupid, it's not funny. W-I-T-F-T-N. That means, well, it's time for the nose. And now he thought LOL meant lying on lemurs. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I was kind of wondering how there's so many people lying on lemurs. It just sounded like it was a trend I wasn't aware of. And then, well, anyway, we're going to come to that later in the show today. We, um, you know, we should have, somebody should tweet to Megan Garber right now and tell her to listen to this show. She's a writer for The Atlantic. And just the way things have worked out, if we get through all of our topics today, we will discuss two different Megan Garber articles. Partly because Irene Papoulos, one of our panelists today, is apparently the president of the Megan Garber fan club uh, <laughs> because she kept sending us Megan Garber pieces all week. So, um, what? So let me just tell you. First of all, I should say now that I've mentioned one panelist, who the rest of them are. So, Irene Papoulos, professor from Trinity College, uh, and then uh, James Handley, the be-all and end-all of Cine Studio, also at Trinity College, and then the George Martin of Connecticut and a virtuosic uh, guitar player, which George Martin was not, uh, Jim Chapdelaine. So, they're all here, uh, and what is there to say? All right, so we have to talk about the topics. In, in the beginning segment, we're going to talk about kind of the rising tide of casual violence at Trump rallies. I, as I said before we even went on the air, I don't know how much of a discussion this can be because I think we all pretty much have the same basic take on it. But it just – it has become so prevalent and it's almost as though we're getting used to it without really ever having talked about it. So I at least want to do that. Then in the second segment, we will indeed talk about the changing meaning of the term LOL. We will indeed talk about uh, the legacy of George Martin, the quiet uh, fifth Beatle uh, and – uh, lastly, if there's time, uh, and I think there will be time, uh, another Megan Garber article. She wrote the LOL article, another Megan Garber, Garber article. It's really two articles uh, about the shoes of Claire Underwood, the first lady of the United States on the House of Cards, um, which has also caused me to look at the shoes of Michelle Obama, which has actually gotten, to me, gotten me in a certain amount of trouble. But uh, maybe I'll have time to explain that too. So let's begin. Uh, let's begin with the, these Trump rallies. As I say, it's probably not something that we can have a spirited argument about. No one is going to be pro-violence. But uh, we've seen uh, this week uh, the, the newest development, I mean sort of casual 
random acts of violence have become kind of the rule rather than the exception at these, at these rallies, uh, along with chants of, you know, Sig Heil and set him on fire, all this very scary stuff. And somebody got sucker punched at a, at a rally this week, although I would say it was a protester in his 20s being sucker punched by a man in his late 70s. But a sucker punch is a sucker punch. But meanwhile, Trump himself seems to kind of endorse this kind of thing. He rather than apologizing it or denouncing it, uh, he's even talked about the fact that he misses the good old days when you could send somebody out on a stretcher, to use his words. Uh, apparently, you can't. Life is not violent enough right now, or you can't beat your protesters up as much as he would really like to. But I guess the latest development is a member of the press and a member of the far right press at that, Michelle Fields from Breitbart, um, describing this week uh, an incident uh, within the last two days in which she was yanked and nearly thrown to the ground uh, as Donald Trump passed through the midst of the press. She and she kind of specializes in ambush journalism, was kind of barking out a question, Adam. And the person allegedly, and I think now she's asked, she's filed a police report about it. The person allegedly who did this was Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Uh, there were witnesses who saw it. Um, there are bruises, visible bruises on her forearm from when, where this happened. So now we've moved into a whole different area. So, um, James, I think you're the right person to begin with here. I mean, is it possible to make too much of this? I mean, it, I... I don't I've been through a lot of campaign seasons and certainly 68 was kind of a violent year in other ways but I don't think I really remember campaign rallies where at least not in America and not you know not in the last 50 years where stuff like this happened. I think that's true. Um I mean I certainly was uh, at plenty of rallies and uh places where there was street violence about the Vietnam War and uh, about issues in the 60s. Um, I think this is something different, and I think it's trading on a lot of things, one of which is historical ignorance. And uh, I think uh, a lot of people who not only have a historical ignorance, but people who want to have a historical ignorance. And so. Wait, what do you mean by historical ignorance? Well, uh, historical ignorance about violence and about how violence is incited. And in particular, I'm thinking of of, uh, of the Weimar Republic and the demonization of certain groups of people, uh, Jews, homosexuals, artists, people who fitted a certain uh, a, a certain category, which it was possible to say, uh, 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 I guess the current term to describe it would be a dog whistle to say, don't worry, we're going to sweep these people out of the way, you know, like it's okay. It's empowering people who actually have violent impulses and they're very angry about things. They're angry about things like, for instance, same-sex marriage. And they will think that, okay, it's that we're going to find a way to get around this. You know, we're going to somehow change the world back to some imagined past that was more pure and that we shared the values that way. And I think it's directed at black people. It's directed at people who don't fit within a certain category. Um, uh, the list is very long. And I think that in the case of Trump, uh, he himself is sort of like a clown prince. But I think that he's also surrounded by a lot of people who are doing exactly that. And I thought there's an interesting parallel with the death of Nancy Reagan, you know, who's uh, uh, there's so much talk about how much love she had for Ronald Reagan. But she also was a puppet master, I think, a puppet mistress, if you like, who who actually was uh, part of the process that allowed a genial, apparently friendly type of person to introduce extraordinarily pernicious policies. 
in, during his time in office and particularly in the South. And it was a dog whistle, if you like, again, to racism, that racism was OK. So I think what's happening at the Trump rallies is a culmination of 40, 45 years of the Republican Party seeking to actually gain power by using things like that. And that, to me, is it, it makes my skin crawl, frankly. And I think that if somebody can get beaten up at a political rally in this country, alarm bells should be going off. And I don't think they are. Or they are. I mean, or they should be. Yeah, I mean, I think we should sound them if they're not going off. Yet. Yes, I mean, I, I, agree. I completely agree with you. And I think it's it was interesting to watch the... You know, that just the video of the guy that got sucker punched, which, by the way, what exactly is a sucker punch? He hits you when you're not like, looking, right? When you're not, you're not yeah. paying so attention. You, you're not paying attention. Being, okay. A fight has not been declared. Right. It, 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 just somebody randomly punching you out of the blue. Like, uh, yeah. like Colin, okay. what are you doing? Right. Colin, no. I don't know why I kept looking at Jim for a definition. <laughs> like you, I you've, would know. you've played in a lot of bars. But I have yeah. played in bars. I have seen the sucker punch employed, uh, also called, called a cold cock. Yeah. All right, Bam. so it's like you are a sucker because you didn't see it coming. Yeah, you have no idea it's coming in kablam. Yeah. But, I mean, when you look at that video, you see, I mean, first of all, that appalling sucker punch in itself. But the whole thing looks like this chaotic, like the guys aren't listening. There's Trump, you know, uh, you know, halfway, you know, a mile away giving his speech about how, you know, great he is and everything. And then you have all these people and there's all this restless energy and moving and standing up and punch, you know, punching, you know, it's sort of like this violent, it would be really, really scary to walk into, I feel like it would be really, really scary to walk into an atmosphere like that. And that's becoming mainstream for a certain, you know, I just feel like there's this civil war, though, between people like us who, uh, you know, don't or at least we want to think that we would never condone anything like that. And the people that go to the rallies and that he fosters who are just kind of like it, so maybe I don't know if it's historical ignorance or historical, you know, they want to They want to stamp out people that who whom they decide are, are, are not worthy, you know, and even that right wing. Uh, woman that got that got knocked down was asking a question about affirmative action. You know, it's like so. There's certain topics you can't even bring up. Yeah, it's just well, you know. unclear that she got uh, roughed up because she was asking that particular question. But it mm-hmm. is it has been an interesting dance to watch, Jim. This is Breitbart. This is the media outlet Breitbart. So this is probably ideologically about as close to at least the far right version of Trump's politics. Sure. And, and we have to acknowledge there are kind of multiple versions of Trumpian politics. But as far uh, as close to the far right of this as could be. And, and also Trump has enjoyed a somewhat cozier relationship with the press than he might otherwise because he's just sort of good for is good for interest. I think it was Les clicks. Moonves, uh, president of CBS, who said he's he's bad for the country, but he's good for business. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty transparent, right there. Um, I'd like to point out that Irene and James just made the list. I think <laughs> who's ever who's ever making <laughs> yeah, the list? Good. You guys are on it, so we'll go to I'm the rally all, together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm going to go on record and say I'm all for sucker punching. <laughs> uh, in case anyone's listening, I, 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 yeah, I, I wonder does did Trump plan to get this far? And, and we've talked about is there anything he can do or say or his proxies do or say short of somebody getting killed at a Trump rally, which is not beyond the, the – Even that. The, the, and even that, that will somehow be brushed off. I don't, I don't know. 
But I think he could be I think you're right. First of all, I think somebody's going to get badly hurt in one of these situations. Where's the line before somebody says, you know, this is getting really out of hand? And also, after they punched the guy, the people came and carried him out as though he were the one who – who was at fault? Right. You know, right. it, it that you know that the, was just the uh, the assaulter has since been arrested. Right. Well, right. remember that some of the first incidents that happened were from Trump's own security people. That's right. Who were beating people up. Mm-hmm. This was not something that came out of nowhere. I mean, if anything is a telegraph to the violent, potentially violent people in a crowd that it's okay is for your own security people yeah. to, to, to smack somebody. People covered with Trump stakes, mm. just walking around smacking people with them. Exactly. And so – and then you have the factor of the entertainment value of this, which is fully exploited by the media. So it means that we don't really have a serious discussion about why did this happen in the first place by somebody employed by a political candidate for president of the United States. How was that okay that they beat somebody up in the street? This needs to be something very seriously addressed, and I really don't think it has. And he's—it seems like he's deliberately not addressing it. Why would, he is Why addressing would he? it. He's Why not, would he? If well, he's not addressing yeah. it negatively. Yeah, I mean, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, I thought the article in the Times today about people being afraid to have their kids—or not afraid, but you know—how how do you talk to your kids about Trump? You know, and wanting to shield their children from having to see those things. And it made me think about you know. So those were sort of the people that read the New York Times, and you know. But I then I was thinking about all the kids who go to those Trump rallies and are being taught that that's how you behave, you know, like you just, you know, it's 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 a black and white world in the sense of like good guys and bad guys. If you don't like people, you can punch them. That's what people do. And so there's those kids who are learning that. And then there's the kids who are being, uh, you know, sheltered from it. And those kids are the ones who are going to say, wow, we didn't know. Why is Trump acting like this? We don't get it. And he they says grow that up into politics is say that. fun. He's, he, that's his, his defense. Yeah. He's like, We're having fun at our rallies. And, and love. We're showing love. Jonathan McNichol makes an interesting point, too, which is that um, – and I'm sure, James, uh, you contemplated about whether uh, to show uh, the recent uh, movie about Stanley Milgram and his experiments. Um, so Milgram down at Yale you know, did these experiments, and which basically prove that it's relatively easy to incite people to do violent things as long as you provide some kind of sheltering rubric of authority, right? If some authority exactly. figure exactly tells, you right. to, tells you it's kind of okay to do something, a reasonably peaceable person, a person not given to even doing these kinds of things will commit atrocities. Oh, it's Betsy who's telling me this. Uh, um, so, um, well, whoever's telling me this, it's a really good point. <laughs> well, I think it's also that's an indication. Is it goes back to this thing about ignorance of history. I mean, that, that there's a large sector of the population that that doesn't read stuff like that, doesn't know stuff like that. But I'm sure that there are plenty of people in political circles, including in Trump circles, who say, well, you know, if this is a lever we can use, if we can actually get attention this way and we can empower the people who are supposedly so, quote, unquote, angry, but actually incite people, it's a lever to get power. It's a lever to get control. And it can be very cynically used. And when you have a large number of young people, for example, who are not really uh, aware of some of the history they should be aware of, it's really an opportunity to exploit, which they're doing to the full. Yeah, not to mention just knowing how our government, you know, 
where our governor is, about, is supposedly about deliberation, getting right. different points of view, listening to different points of view. And, you know, so it's, it's moving to another kind of form of government right there. Well, you know? exactly. And in ignorance of the Constitution, you've got uh, uh, people who are actually talking about the, uh, the nature of the Supreme Court as if it was something to be got around, you know, that this was, this, this was just a hindrance to the true sort of the true destination of America, which would be a place where, you know, the, these, these horrible things about expanding opportunities and affirmative action and all the things that the far right hates that somehow this can all be gotten away with and it could be all swept away if somehow you can just convince the public that the Constitution doesn't matter, that if you're a judge in, uh, in, in, in Mississippi or Alabama, you can say, well, just don't obey the Supreme Court. You know, just well, have it the e- way we want. Well, even more is flipping the script on the Constitution and sort of auto-tuning the Constitution. Exactly. Very so, good. Yes, so I, I, so I think exactly. really these guys, Ted Cruz especially, is like the T-Pain of the yes. Constitution where yeah. he's got his auto-tuned mic on and everything comes out Constitution, Constitution, but it's really contrary the, to, up, right, the exact to the opposite. Anyway, yes. my thought about all this yeah. is, look, look, if they want to talk about that, if they want to debate that, if they want to take those positions, that's fine. But we have crossed some kind of line here. But no punching. Uh, yeah, no punching, no punching, no hitting, no kicking, uh, all that kind of stuff. All right, we are going to have to take a break here uh, just so we can get to our other three topics. Uh, Derek from Windsor, thank you so much for calling in, but we're kind of at the end of this topic. We're going to move on, but and we will, and we'll be back. Well, uh, not that it hasn't been covered on other public radio shows this week, but we're going to spend a few moments talking about George Martin anyway um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. George Martin, obviously, famously referred to as the fifth Beatle, uh, the person who uh, produced their sound, sharpened their sound, carried out many of their uh, extravagant and impractical demands, uh, somehow or other made those things happen in an audio context uh, and, and, all, and continued to maintain a, a shy – or not shy but a reserved uh, and kind of back burner presence on the scene, although I think his importance to them is almost impossible to overstate. So, But we do have the George Martin of Connecticut here with us right now, Jim Chapterlane. You spent a lot of time in the studio uh, producing people. What, what does George Martin mean to you? Well, he is the uh, clear point of demarcation where pop music changes forever, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but, and, uh, up to George Martin, there's – pop music being documented and then George Martin takes the studio and makes that a fifth instrument, another instrument. It becomes a painting instead of a document and I think a lot of it comes from his background producing comedy albums like Spike Milligan and and Peter Sellers. Mm. Uh, I actually looked up when when, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks began. That was 1958. That was tape manipulation, right? Right. George Martin, up to that point, had either been super commercial, hilarious things that tape manipulation got or super avant-garde collage type things. And he took it and made it commercial. Um, And he took the Beatles and said, uh, please, please me, shouldn't be a Roy Orbison ballad. It should be this pop thing and you need to write an intro. And he, he sort of gave them a musical discipline 
that they didn't have prior to that, and they were eager students. Uh, yeah, some more eager than others, and I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. But let's just hear um, a little bit of – actually, before I, we play this, let me read just a great paragraph by our own uh, writer, uh, Steve um, Metcalf, talking about what would have happened had there been no George Martin. He writes, would we have ever heard the mind-blowing backwards type tape loop at the end of Rain or the crisply speeded up Baroque piano solo in – in my, on in my life, or the jaunty piccolo trumpet on Penny Lane, or the electronic chorus on Tomorrow Never Knows, or the subtly jazzy sax ensemble on Lady Madonna, or the brilliantly stitched together alternate takes to form Strawberry Fields Forever, or the deliciously Ives-like random steam organ snippets on Mr. Kite, or the apocalyptic Mellotron-infused sound world of I Am the Walrus. We actually have some of those songs available for you today, but let's hear just a little bit of the first song he mentions, Rain. That's how rain winds down. And, you know, um, Irene, one of the conversations that I was having with somebody else from our generation today uh, was about why is this still so exciting to talk about? Like I read the Times had these five songs yesterday that Martin worked on describing exactly what he'd done, how he'd negotiated things out with John and Paul. You know, and I'm just reading them like they're, they're today's news. They are every bit as exciting still in a way. I wouldn't read, about, read stuff like this about any other band. Yeah. I mean, it's in our DNA. I mean, even just now when you read all the lists, I could hear all the, all the things you were, you were, you meant, that Metcalf mentioned, and it's just so much a part of our, our you know, lives and our past, you know, up to the present. You know, we just, we can't help it. You know, people of our generation, it's true. And, um, you know, though there's a lot of young people that love the Beatles, too. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the students that I have and everything, you know, love the Beatles, too. So maybe it's not just, we, we can't even claim it for ourselves. There's just something magic about that music. Although, James, one of the thoughts that I had today, too, was this is at a moment, just to build even on what Jim was saying before, this is a moment at which five or six or seven people really could change the DNA of pop music, who, who could take pop music and push it in an entirely new direction. There was, there was enough space to do that in. So you've got the Beatles plus George Martin plus maybe Brian Wilson, you know, and just to take this whole huge hurtling engine and, and make it veer off 35 degrees in, in in a different direction. I'm not sure anybody could even do that now. I mean, Radiohead may be brilliant, but there maybe isn't the space to do that kind of thing. I don't think there is quite the same space. I mean, I, I think something, that, the the thing that was so special to me about George Martin, the, I like the allusion to the idea of a painting, of the music becoming a painting, that he was a person who saw detail as being the framework for the substance, if you like, that all of these details of the way the music was expressed and using tricks that were becoming available uh, with tape and uh, with, with, with various manipulations, he was able to not just use them as devices but to enhance. And I mean, I think the, the, some of the things that were going on with the Beach Boys, there were similarities there. Um, but George Martin somehow had a large sense of music, uh, uh, clearly a, a sense of classical music, 
and the currents of music that that were within the Beatles' music that wasn't just pop music. There was more embroidery to be done there. And I think that that is something that is a person. It comes from a person. One of the things that will be difficult now, I think, is that there are so many tools, really, for creating something out of, you know, say, just a simple song that it, it it's a much harder job, really, to make something distinctive that doesn't overwhelm what has just been created. Or and that I, hasn't been done repeated. That isn't that, cliche. That, that isn't that, cliche. And maybe even yes. something that he yes. made cliche. Right. right. You know, yes. There's all these, like, now there's all these remixes of everything and remixers. So in a way, maybe it's using that. It's trying to somehow make use of that skill uh, to make a new song out of a song that's Let, already there. Let's actually hear a little bit more uh, George right. Martin production. This is uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Even now, that's a startling sound, and think how startling it was uh, in its moment when it was played. And Jim, you know, there's always that sort of fine line, and I'm sure it's it's taken up more of your life than you've wanted it to, where a musician is making unreasonable uh, demands to you as a producer. Make it sound like this, make it sound like that. The difference with the Beatles, with John and Paul and George Martin, seems seems to be that their requests were really exciting to him, even when they were impossible, uh, e- even when they were asking him to do something that had never been done before, that no one had ever contemplated, that Martin thought, well, m- maybe there's a way to do this. Well, well, Strawberry Fields would be sort of the ultimate mediated recording. And, and I should point out, I only have half headphones today, <laughs> which is a perfect way. I would encourage everybody to listen to those Beatle recordings with one ear on and one ear off because it's not like a stereo recording that you hear today where the kick drum is up the middle, the snare drum is up, the bass is up. The, the drums are on the left, the vocals are on the right. They were playing with stereo in a way that's very – so just now I heard something very different than what you guys heard because your brain does the assembly. Uh, but if you do isolate the components, it's it's pretty fascinating. I think, I think wow. that's a really profound uh, view of it because um, at the time, stereo was something almost like a sort of <clears throat> ping pong effect that there were albums coming out that had the music jumping from one side to another. It was a novelty. And um, they were designed to – the original Beatle albums were designed to be played in mono. Yes, And then exactly. they had to break them out. Exactly, exactly right. And there's also another thing that's a, an interesting wrinkle. I grew up in England at the time, and one of the extraordinary things was how everybody of my age wanted to hear American pop songs and blues and all of this music – the BBC wouldn't play it. The BBC was the only source of, of, of music programs, and they wouldn't play it. They wouldn't pay the royalties. So they had house bands copying everything, which always oh, to us sounded really lame. So what did we do? We listened, I hate to say it, to Jimmy Savile and his shows on oh. Radio Luxembourg, which transmitted to England, and people listened to that, and that's how they heard the music. But what is extraordinary about George Martin's appearance at that time and doing this sort of thing was that in the midst of an incredibly sort of bland universe, along come the Beatles and then along comes George Martin creating this incredibly intricate new direction in a place which had been starved really for that, that that people really had to fight to find that stuff. Yeah, and you you do wonder um, 
what they would have been like without George Martin, that, you know, they would have been uh, vibrant and musically inventive, but would they have been good enough to cross the Atlantic? Would they have been more than just this, you know, really melodious yeah. Mersey beat? Would they you know? have even gotten a recording deal? Would they have would, gotten a recording deal? Because he rejected them yeah. once, and then his assistant took a shine to them, and finally they got in with him. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed reading about today uh, in, in this piece was that there was sort of a different dynamic between him and John and him and Paul uh, that with Lennon, Lennon being kind of a visionary but not m- musically quite as virtuosic, Lennon would get these incredible ideas and then he would sort of just demand that they be realized. And you talked about Strawberry Fields as being kind of the ultimate mediated version where they just Lennon just kept asking for more and more and people were running around the studio. speeding tape up <laughs> yeah. and slowing tape down from two different versions to try to get the key to match. And what, whereas Paul uh, was more, I think, the, the willing pupil, you know, and it was kind of like, oh, you want to do this? Okay. And in fact, he's often the guy running around the studio playing the timpani or something. Right, right. You know, well, because- if, if you listen to Eleanor Rigby, that's the first time that they had really super close might mm. strings like that. Mm. Before that, strings were supposed to be this gentle, lulling, symphonic sound. Mm-hmm. It's jarring. In right. Eleanor, yeah. you can hear the rosin on the yeah. bow. You can yeah. hear it's a very aggressive sound. It, you know, if you go back and listen to it now with that in mind, you'll hear like, wow. That, that, and that became a new convention. Seems like, you know, there's something so blissful about that. Can you imagine, you know, being in that kind of situation where, you know, they all had their role to play and they had this beautiful collaboration that created amazing things, you know. And the, but it, it sounds like, it sounds to me like they, they couldn't have individually done that it was the collaboration mm-hmm. it was just that that lucky accident of or whatever it was that brought them all together and it's just it's just beautiful i mean we should all have something like that you know let's hear a little bit of the the nostalgia uh, of the song penny lane and once again I, as metcalf points out i don't i don't think it comes out this way without uh without george martin One last thing that I wanted to mention about this, uh, we have to leave, leave time for LOL, obviously, but uh, um, is that for me, the Beatles are, one of the things that the Beatles are that will not be repeated. Like I, I, I worry somehow that because we're all of a generation, you know, we see this and maybe we don't understand, we, I, we undoubtedly don't understand the degree to which, say, hip hop was a comparable revolution. The difference being that it took hundreds of people to accomplish that revolution, whereas I think the Beatles and Brian Wilson did it basically with six people. But, um, but, but that one thing that won't be repeated is that the most popular group of musicians in the world, the most popular band in the world by far, were also avant-gardist. You know? right. They were right. working with avant-garde musicians. They were influenced by the most avant-garde musicians. And, and got more and more avant-gardist. They went on and that we assimilate that as pop. I mean you could make a case that when Charlie Parker came out, you know, Louis Armstrong said, oh, my God, it sounds like Chinese music. Uh, and now we hear Charlie Parker licks played behind carpet commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, we eventually do assimilate these things that are initially avant-garde. But with the Beatles, it, they were so clever. And I think part of that is their eagerness to explore and George Martin, Martin being able, uh, uh, capable of enabling them to do that. 
I, I agree. I think there was one other factor, too, that was kind of a social thing, which was what I would describe, I guess, as the in-your-face insolence of John Lennon, mm-hmm. in that he, in, in a societal sense in England, was in the face of the establishment. Um, and that, portr- that, that, that played out through the music as well. And I think that was the uh, original source of the conflict with, with, um, with, with others, because he would actually stop things and sort of be challenging stuff, and he'd be interviewed on uh, in almost a political way, rather than just being about the music, which I think was very fundamental to what emerged from from uh, the whole studio, the, all of the effects and the music, and 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 Sergeant Pepper especially. That was like a, a a flowering of exactly that. And when John Lennon became a political figure, it was like a natural segue. Yeah, yeah. All right, we have to move into the what we will now think of as the Megan Garber section of our show. Uh, <laughs> two articles in the Atlantic, one about LOL, one about high heels uh, on House of Cards. So, and Irene sent, sent both of them to us. So you have to lead things off. The first one is about this use in texts and uh, and emails of LOL and what it's come to mean. It clearly doesn't mean anymore laughing out loud. Uh, which is what it's supposed to mean. So as somebody yeah. who teaches writing and language, what interests you about LOL? Um, all right, let's see where to start. The first the first thing is that I would never use it. Mm-hmm. But why is that? You know. And then I thought, I bet Colin would never use it either. And you agreed, right? I'm pretty sure, yeah. I've, I'm pretty sure I've never LOL'd. But then other people use I it have. all the time. You have. I don't use it all the time, but I have. To mean what? To mean laughing out loud? Or no, to mean the... the the, the real reason is lots of love, right? <laughs> yeah, lots <laughs> yeah. of love. <laughs> That's what it means. I, no, it, I, you know, there's there's nothing like uh, the acerbic dressing down from a 17 year old girl to get you to stop even discussing LOL. How, so LOL, and I know I'm kind of I'm injecting here, but according to my daughter, LOL is now spoken. It's never oh. used. Uh, yikes, I'm so sorry. It's usually like, a gesture so as one knocks over one. Uh, oh, <laughs> OMG. Uh, um, it's, it's spoken. Yeah. So, really? And it's Say spoken LOL? ironically and dismissively. Wait a minute. You mean actually so, uh, with your voice? Yeah, yeah, either LOL or lols. Yeah. Or lols. So or just lols. like adorbs or totes or whatever, any of those things that you and I don't. Oh, dear. Get worried, at and yeah. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. so, James, it's, you know, it's intriguing to speculate about this because it's, I think, once again, generationally, we are inclined to, you know, adopt a sort of declinist mode about this. On the other hand, what's happened is obviously that human beings are really adaptable. And we've, as we moved on to more digital kinds of communications it, uh, and the voice fell out of it, uh, it was necessary, I think, to, uh, to find some kind of new vocabulary to colorize what we're saying. I think that's true. And I mean, it's about speed of communication. And I think for, I mean, for me, I enjoy the sort of floweriness of, uh, in a way, of communication. I enjoy sort of like the act of writing or the act of having a conversation. And LOL, I feel I'm kind of like a victim of when I, when somebody uses it, you know, it's like like, double speak. Yeah, right, right. It's like, okay, so you're not sort of, okay, this is an epithet kind of thing. And I mean, I don't object. Sorry, What's from that? 1984. Newspeak, yeah. yes. you know, like newspeak, just yes. find the most, right. find the most um, 
We're using you know, 1984 references. Of, yeah, to, 1984. To but I think, but I think for people who've grown up, uh, young people who've grown up with nothing but cell phones and texting, that it's a matter of economy of expression and getting things across. But it also ties up with slang and the nature of slang and the fact that as soon as LOL is understood as laughing out loud or whatever it is, it's going to <laughs> move and change is. because. Yeah. It's part of being that age and using it as a communication tool that it becomes subversive if its meaning changes, but the other people who are not so familiar with it don't realize that. So then you can use LOL ironically. Right. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny that it means laughing out loud and then it changed to something that didn't mean that. And I was thinking about the word funny, you know, because we, we all say, yeah. oh, that's really funny. Yeah. I, I thought I put my keys here and now, and now they're not here. That's funny. You know, yeah. but it's not really funny. You know, that's so funny. To use I have the a word... big lump on my leg that no one knows what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boy, that's funny. Exactly. Not that so funny. Isn't it? Isn't it funny that yeah. we're using something that means, you know, that yeah. something that means funny gets transformed into something that's more like a placeholder. I mean, I love the um, McCorder thing that was linked to in that article where he talks about, you know, meat used to mean all food, silly used to mean blessed, you know, and it's just things just, words just evolve. And, and then he talks about the concept, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, John, John McWhorter you're talking about, who yeah. is linked in the Megan Garber thing, and he gives us an example of Jocelyn and Annabelle, two friends who are texting each other. Jocelyn texts, where have you been? McWhorter uh, uh, explains, and that uh, Annabelle texts back, texts back LOL, at the library studying for two hours. Well, clearly that's not a joke. It's not funny. You're not laughing. LOL. It means something else, right? It, it, and he says it doesn't mean something. It does something. It retinctures the statement, I'm at the library studying for two hours. Yeah. It's really hard to explain exactly what it is. Or of, when he says it's grammar. It means it sort of sucks, how, right? how do you explain yeah, to a non-English speaker the difference between <laughs> LOL and rolling on the floor laughing, for example? Well, R-O-F-L, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think you can explain it. I think, I think first of all, I mean, first of all, I, I, LOL has come to have a whole bunch of different meanings, which is also not that unusual in, in any language and especially the English language. And one, one thing that I welcome is sometimes when I'm writing in a somewhat humorous or not entirely serious vein to somebody, when they write back LOL, blah, 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 I think, oh, good. They didn't misinterpret what I just said. <laughs> or or they right. have a lemur. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there, I mean, there are a number of possible explanations. But the one I seized upon is, okay, so they got that that was not intended seriously. So we can proceed now. We can go to the next step. Okay, right, because there's something, he says something about it means sarcasm. You right. know, like there's an element of, it's, it's kind of like I, I recognize the sort of irony of what I'm saying or what you're saying or something like that. Well, does that make you then want to use it? I mean, now after reading all that, it makes me feel like, oh, I want to use this too. If you use it, you can only speak it. But what an opportunity for changing the meaning of it and using it ironically. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's like, it can be a period at the end of a sentence. People are going to start using it as a defense in trials too. (laughs) It's like an LOL. No, it wasn't really a threat. I I said, LOL, I'm going to come to your house and and shoot you. Um, All right. We have to uh, switch uh, gears very quickly. This is another one that Irene has to kick off for us. She's totally responsible for it. We don't have a lot of time, which is probably good because I doubt we even know how to talk about it. But she did send us another Megan Garber article. It's about the Netflix series House of Cards, in which uh, now the uh, first family of the United States are Frank and Claire Underwood, these ruthless uh, Richard III-like schemers. Uh, And Megan Garber has noted that Claire Underwood, who's played by Robin Wright and whose clothes are really very, very carefully worked out and tightly tailored and, and very 
crisp and 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 have kind of a a function as, almost as dialogue within the series that these they include stiletto heels, which she doesn't take off even when she's walking around her own house when she's at home, uh, and so that this clearly means something. Clothing means something. So. Um, Take it away. What, what did it mean to you? What did it say to you? Um, well, first of all, it's part of it is uh, Robin Wright is such a wonderful actor. Uh, you know, she just does such a beautiful job with the character. So it means that she's held in. She um, she wants to she wants to look a certain way. She wants to look extremely professional as she's defining it. You know, her whole body language walking around, and she manages to walk for the most part, not always, but. Um, as though you can't tell, because so many women wearing three-inch heels walk in a way that you can see the, the the torture that they're experiencing when they're walking with them. She manages to to make it look like there's no torture at all, you know. And but but there is, you know. And so it's just like in order to make it, she she just she's so held in and so so driven toward her goal, you know. Um, I don't. And so so just her performance alone in those high heels. But it it also makes you think about. The role of high heels in our culture, you know, traditionally something that men think looks good, look good. So women feel like, well, it, you know, looks good for the men. But then does it really look good for the men? And as somebody who sort of came of age in the shadow of the first wave of feminism, I, I feel I was I was sort of, you know, brought up, you know, in terms of my feminist consciousness to think that, you know, any attempt to 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 wear high heels or, or even adorn yourself at all was somehow capitulating to, to a certain male perspective. And since then, I've sort of figured out a few things about, about that uh, that I don't have time to explain. But, you know, it's interesting to think that, that uh, about just high heel. you know, are they for men or are they for herself? You know, is it her way of being strong and powerful? You know, I don't know. I, I wonder, James, too, if it's, I mean, we may have a woman president pretty soon, which <coughs> we'll get to uh, find out more about this. But even looking at Michelle Obama, who wears high heels and stiletto heels a lot, even though she's a r- rather tall woman, too. But it's almost like Kennedy in the hat. Remember when Kennedy didn't wear the hat and suddenly yeah, right. it destroyed the hat industry? Someone is going to come along and destroy the high heels in- industry. Uh, I'm s- almost surprised it's not Michelle Obama. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's something that's ripe for something like that to happen. But I think of, you know, like like how many more years is Michelle Obama going to do that? I mean, when she's no longer first lady, is she really, you know, past 30, your body structure gets to be a point where actually maintaining that sort of control uh, using uh, shoes. No, she's I, in really good shape. She had yeah, a little stumble. She had a little stumble yesterday. The uh, Canadian yeah, first lady yeah, had to kind of catch her. But she, <laughs> she makes I, it look fun, though. She's yeah, so, I, so much the opposite of Claire Underwood. The way Michelle wears high heels. It's like a costume that has an under underlying sort of message of control, which I don't think is always a positive thing. Um, you mean being controlled? Or? Being controlled. Mm-hmm. Yes, that the expectation that if you're going to be stylish and you're going to show off your clothing. At the best possible in the best possible way. Well, okay, so that means you have to hold your body tight and you have to be mu- sort of muscularly tense. And but high there's heels. control too. There's an, you are in control if well, you can make yes, it work. It's complicated like that. Yeah. But I I do think that the expectation that a woman in her position, for example, I mean, I can imagine the fashion press going crazy if she appeared in flatties all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it would be you, like. Do you watch House of Cards? Uh, I've tried to, but I I am sort of LOLing here because uh, I'm <laughs> headed to a, an ankle surgeon right after the show, oh, <laughs> and, and uh, the thought of women doing this has always perplexed me. And I, I remember a woman in New York City with her. She had one of those big portfolios 
And she was like a ninja, just racing down the street with her pencil skirt and these three-inch heels, avoiding grates and darting in and out. She was fully acclimated. This was her world. And I thought, well, good for her. I mean, I I guess it's not up to me to judge. They've even changed Barbie's feet, which apparently used to be angled only for high heels. Uh, So maybe that's that's the beginning of the trend. I think she beat me to this person I'm seeing. All right. Okay, so we have to take a break here, come back with some recommendations after this. Blame it on the high heels. Blame it on the high heels. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jonathan McPants, Betsy Kaplan, and Katie Talarski. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Benjamin Esty and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin Spacey. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff, ROTFL, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, we're back with news from the weekend. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we'll come back on Monday with our Scramble segment. These days, uh, it's rare for us to do a Monday Scramble without having to talk about something that happened in the current presidential campaign over the weekend. So I don't know yet what that will be, but I'm guessing it's going to be uh, up there pretty high. So it's time to recommend things. Irene Papoulis, what have you got for us? All right. Well, speaking of that, the, my first thing is to is to um, do all the uh, is to assert all the values that are against Trump. You know, examine your inner life, cultivate joy, resist evil, look beyond the surface of things, love people beyond self-interest. Everything that is the opposite of Trump is good. Also, I'm going to the Hartford Symphony tonight. I've been listening to Prokofiev's First and Fifth Symphony. And it's just so great to to listen to a symphony a lot, a bunch of times, and then go to the Hartford Symphony and hear them play it. So I highly recommend that. Yes, you've been a a devoted uh, Caroline Kwan and Hartford Symphony fan uh, right along. And it's it's a point that I've made previously, too, is it's not just a labor strike. It's actually a symphony orchestra. So they got through their, Mm -hmm. it wasn't a strike anyway, they got through their labor problems. Now you really have to support them. And they are pretty amazing, too. They are. Caroline's fun to watch. All right, uh, James Hanley, what have you got for us? Um, For an interesting uh, reminder of a different perspective on women, uh, we have at Cine Studio uh, City of Women, a revival of Federico Fellini's film. Um, with Marcello Mastroianni uh, happening upon a convention of women. Um, and uh, it's been fully restored. A magnificent restoration plays Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday at Cine Studio. Oh, I'm going to that. And <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, really a uh, shout-out to the folks who exposed the water deal in Bloomfield and all the work they've been doing and the incredible testimony to the committee that I guess was meeting today. And Beth Bai, um, uh, the legislator who decided to make an issue of it. Uh, I I think it's really extraordinary. Water is such a central thing to our community. We have some of the best water in the country, and a lot of things were happening in secret that shouldn't have happened. So a shout-out to all of those people and all their energy I think is Mm -hmm. amazing. As long as we're uh, dipping into your schedule, too, you also have Carol playing right now, right? That's correct, yes. And you you might perhaps want to know that Irene Papoulos at the Oscar party this year uh, came dressed as Carol. It was so much fun. Oh, uh, but one thing I discovered is a lot of uh, quite a few people have not seen Carol, and oh. if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's it, in a studio. It's great. Uh, it's a magnificent film. I really. It's Todd Haynes is a, uh, with a magnificent pair of performances: Kate Blanchett and Rooney yeah. Mara. Uh, and, and a nice side performance by Sarah Paulson, who's also doing some uh, pretty yeah. interesting work right now as Marsha Clark uh, in uh, in the O.J. That's thing right. on, on television. She's a really interesting Marsha Clark. All right, Jim Chaplin, what have you got for us? Uh, not, I have some funny little 
endorsements here. Um, I recently lost uh, one of my favorite high school teachers, and I was uh, on a name was Bob Conley, and he knew that I was a horrible, no good student, and he still hung with me. Um, and in this chain email, this giant thing, I saw a bunch of my other high school teachers, so I just mailed them to thank them for putting up with my why LOLing in class, and uh, and uh, and it seemed to make a difference to them. They seemed happy to get it, and my wife's a teacher, and and uh, so go thank your teachers if they made a difference. That's one. The other is to take a few minutes and listen to some Beatle records with one ear on and one ear off. Um, listen to I'm Only Sleeping and hear the first reverse guitar solo that you can now do with a foot pedal. Um, and and Penny Lane with the high trumpet. I mean, it's really like a whole thing of rediscovery. And it, it's surprising to me. I run into generations of musicians who hate the Beatles because of this sort of reverential uh, pedestal that we're putting them on. But I still say they belong there. And uh, and I think if you go reexamine them, you will be rewarded. Do you have a favorite Beatle album? Um, or is it just more if, song if I, by song? If, if I do, I, I went through four copies of Rubber Soul yep. as a kid. And then Revolver came out and blew my mind. That, I, that's, a, that's my sweet spot right there, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Rubber Soul and Revolver. Right. It's yeah. the age. It's yeah. our age. And, and I think it's also, I mean, there's things on those albums that if they were released today by Radiohead, you wouldn't think, well, this sounds oddly antiquated or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, she said, sounds like some indie band put it out. Sure. You know, sure. last week or something. I mean, an awful lot of it sounds very freshly produced. All right, so I'm I'm doing I'm a poor recommender today simply because here's my here's my lame excuse, uh, which is that yesterday we finished up this tournament of book show that we do every year, which involves at least trying to read seventeen <laughs> novels, and so that's sort of what I've been doing most of the time. And I, I, since we already sort of talked about them, I can't really recommend any of them now. Uh, so I, I kind of diverted me, but on those rare occasions when I wasn't either reading a novel I actually I could just endorse reading novels because it really does it's it, once you read once you get plunged back into reading a lot of novels and I, I think you're all probably better readers than I am in some ways you realize what a profound experience it is and how cheap some of the other entertainments that you've you've you know given yourself over to are by comparison but I, I when on those rare occasions when I wasn't listening to an audiobook or reading a novel um, I did once in a while manage to get back to my podcast list which I'm not entirely happy with right now I, I want to refresh in my podcast menu and listen to different ones, but I do want to um, uh, salute the people that on the media. I mean, this this is a complicated presidential campaign, and the role of the press is getting really complicated, and the press isn't always doing things very well. And on the media, Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone, they, first of all, if you you might as well just listen to it on our radio station. Uh, that's always nice to do. We have it on the weekends. But if you miss it then and you can pick it up on podcast, the work that they're doing right now and just sort of just watchdogging the press and, and how things are being done, they're just terrific. They're, I'm being told they're on it Saturday at 6 a.m. That just <laughs> very convenient somehow. And then Sunday at 3 p.m. Uh, that's a little bit better. But they really are just doing very important work right now. I would in particular um, – I liked a lot of their titles and one of their – titles uh, a couple of weeks ago was Predictile Dysfunction. Uh, <laughs> just, just talking about how bad <laughs> you know, how bad the great. press. And, and they're partnering with Nate Silver right now and covering the campaign. And they brought Nate Silver on to talk about the fact that even he, the great Nate Silver, has gotten pretty much everything wrong. Uh, everybody's uh, uh, as George W. Bush would say, misunderestimated uh, Donald Trump and didn't get Bernie and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, on the media, great work. Thank you. Thanks to Irene Papoulis, James Hanley, and Jim Chapdelaine. We'll be back on Monday. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, 
Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't always wear heels, but when I do, I remember why I don't always wear them.